0: Obviously, one of the challenges with a passage that is before us, like one that's before us, is it contains one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible, probably second, maybe second to David and Goliath or, or Jonah and the, and the great fish. So you have familiarity, which bears down upon us, and that sometimes breeds contempt. We think we know the story, so we just pass on. This story is much more than a Bible lesson for, for Sunday school. It, 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 in fact, it probably fits much better with the senior saints department than, than the youth. I mean, we normally think of Daniel and the lions den as a children's story, but in fact, it's just the opposite. Daniel is not a child or even a young man in this passage. He he's eighty years old when he's challenged to trust God. It's a lesson on faithfulness for all ages, but. But its particular application is on finishing well, and, and that's easy to miss because Daniel has condensed 70 years of his life into six chapters. I mean, it just seems like yesterday we were in Daniel 1 where Daniel was 15 years old, and, but in chapter 6 he's close to the end of, of his life, and... And we saw in chapter 1, Daniel came in like a lion, but he does not go out like a lamb, that's for sure. He, he finishes the way that, that he started. He, he runs through the finish tape with a sprinter's lean, as Joel James says. He comes in and he refuses to compromise the worship of, of God in a brand new culture, and here he is at the end of his life, six kings later, if you count Nabonidus, ruling over him in a pagan land, and... Daniel still refuses to compromise his worship of God. Now, that's a life to emulate, isn't it? I don't think you can read this chapter and not ask the question. If you realize Daniel's age and what he's facing, how will I finish? Well, Daniel shows us how you start and then how you run along the way matters. You're not just going to wake up one day and decide to finish well you start trying to live for the Lord at Daniel's age, you're probably going to falter. You have to run well through chapters 1 through 5 of your life, and, and, and so you'll do that until the whistle blows, like in, in chapter 6. And, and Daniel doesn't even give up whenever he goes into the lion's den. I mean, think about what you might be tempted to do. If you were Daniel, you're exiled from, from Israel... The temple is gone. The sacrifices aren't taking place. You're 80. You've lived through all of these pagan rulers. You've been successful in your life, and and you might think with the with the decree to go into the lion's den. Oh please, oh please, don't throw me in there. Wink, wink. You know, I mean, I enter the lion's den and I come out heaven on on the other side. But what kind of deal is that? But that's not what Daniel does. He lets God choose. When he takes him home, and until he does, Daniel's hands are on the plow in faithful labor, and his heart is directed toward heaven in thankful prayer. I mean, if God wants to take him home through the lion's den, that's far better for Daniel's sake. But, but for Darius the Mede and the pagan people around him and the other Jewish believers that are there, it's far better if he remains, and for us, it's far better that he remains because we're reading like the great Apostle Paul, for Daniel to live as Yahweh and to die as Gain. And as long as he lives, he'll be faithful and he will serve. Daniel 6 is also a chapter that begins and ends with a miracle. You're likely familiar with the second one, which is about the lions. But the, but the first one, let me show you the first one in verse 4. Look we'll at verse 4 of chapter 6. Here's the first miracle. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. That's what that word literally means. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Now, the first miracle is is the miracle of an uncorrupt politician. That's pretty miraculous, isn't it? And it ends with a group of hungry lions that God places on a divine diet. And in between those miracles, though, we have a very applicable lesson for for us today. Daniel 6 is an encouragement for us to remain faithful to God while exiled from the kingdom. And you understand this is not the kingdom, right? This is not... The kingdom right now. We're, we're outside of the kingdom. We're waiting on the, on the kingdom. We're exiled from the, from the kingdom, just like the, the Jews are here. We're pilgrims and strangers in this land. And as we wait on Christ to return, we must be steadfast in our commitment to the Lord, regardless of the times or seasons or, or who is ruling. And just as important, we must trust in God's ability to deliver when a conflict between the kingdoms come, and there will be conflict between the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, and you must trust God to deliver you whenever that, whenever that comes. I pointed out to you last week that the, the first half of Daniel is written in what's called a, a chiasm. The, the plots of chapters 1 through 7 repeat themselves. I mean, it's kind of like a Hallmark movie. You know, Hallmark movies only have two themes. Uh, poor girl meets rich guy who eventually falls in love with her, or rich guy is going to marry bad girl and then falls in love with good girl. It's the only thing Hallmark does, and they just, they even recycle the the actors, the same people in the different movies. Well, the first half of the book of Daniel has three themes that that are repeated. God foretells world history in chapters 2 and 7, and God then controls the kings and kingdoms in that world history in chapters 4 and 5, and and God delivers His faithful that trust in Him in chapters 3 and 6. And He can do that whether you're young, and He can do that whether, whether you're old, and He can do that for several faithful servants who refuse to worship a false god, and He can do that for one lone saint who refuses to forsake the worship of the true God. There are many similarities between chapter 3 and chapter 6, but like last week, the Lord adds some additional encouragement, some more information for us in in, in chapter 6. Both of the chapters have decrees about worship. Chapter 3, there's a command to worship, the wrong kind. Chapter 6, there's a command not to worship, except in a certain way. In both chapters, the servants of God refused to obey earthly authority, and the result was Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, and the three Hebrews were, th- were thrown into a furnace. Both are saved by an angel, and all of them come out of their predicaments with no kind of harm on them. The, chapter 3, their clothes were not even scorched whenever they came out of the fire, and in chapter 6, Daniel wasn't even slobbered on. He didn't even need a lint brush whenever he came out of the lion's den. But chapter 6 adds a twist to the the theme. I mean, the theme verse of chapter 6 is in verse 20. We'll give you what at verse 20, chapter 6. And when he'd come near to the den of lions, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you From the lions? That's that's the question this chapter sets out to answer. That's the theme verse. Will the living God deliver His servants? And not just any servant, but but the ones who trust in, in Him. Evidenced by the fact that they continually serve Him. Those are the ones who actually trust in Him. I mean, in chapter 3, you might remember Nebuchadnezzar questions God's ability to save. You remember what he says to the three Hebrews? He asks, who is this God who, who will deliver you out of my hands? But here in chapter 6, Darius doesn't question who God is, who this God is. He knows. He, he calls Him the living God. His question is, will this living God save the ones who faithfully Serve him. And in this difference, there's an encouragement for us as believers. As you follow God's law, you will live contrary to the world. And when you do, you must trust in the living God's ability to rescue you. And you must not question his ability to do that. To your hope to stop the, the lions is to trust in the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there are two temptations when, when that, that conflict, those collisions of kingdoms come and you're, you're caught right in the middle of it. The, uh, the temptation, the, the first one is you're tempted to obey the, the law of the world over the law of God to avoid the lions. And secondly, we're tempted to trust in other things for our deliverance whenever we do face them. I mean, to put it blunt, we're tempted to compromise or take things in our own hands. But chapter 3 and chapter 6 tells us that being faithful will put you in that predicament. It'll cost you. Chapter 6 reminds you that that a change of residence or ruler or, or regime does not negate the words of Jesus. The world will hate you. Babylon is no longer in control. Persia is, and there's still opposition, even with a favorable king. And Daniel has also faced many tests already. I mean, chapter 6 teaches us that yesterday's victories don't inoculate you from today's challenges. Just because you were faithful whenever you were a young man or woman doesn't mean that you won't be tested whenever you're older, when you're 80, I mean, you may have been placed in the fire at some point in your Christian life and came through as gold, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be excused from from a pit at the end. You will face lions up until the time you leave the earth. There is no military discharge in, in God's army. But the way through is to trust in the living God who will deliver those who faithfully serve Him. I mean, Daniel's three friends were, were unsure of whether God would deliver them or not, but, but either way, they would not disobey. But Daniel trusted that, that God would save him, and he did. And that's the additional theme. There are actually six scenes in, in this chapter. I mean, the first is in the palace where there's this conspiracy uh, about Daniel, and then the second's in Daniel's house where he, he goes to pray, with his windows open toward Jerusalem. And then the third scene is back in the palace where, where Daniel is accused of treason. And then in the fourth scene, it's the evening of the lion's den, and the king is troubled all night. And, the, and then the, the fifth scene is the next morning where he goes to the lion's den. And then scene six is back in the palace where the king makes a decree. And all of them point to one admonition for believers... You must trust in God's ability to rescue as you live contrary to the world. And it breaks down this way. There's a rival conspiracy, verses 1 through 9. There's Daniel's faithful consistency scene in his prayer time in verses 10 and 11. There's his enemy's deceitful charge in verses 12 through 15. There's... The king or the law's reluctant condemnation in verses sixteen and eighteen, and then there's God's glorious confirmation in verses nineteen and twenty-four, and then the ring of the king's royal confession. Verses twenty-five through twenty-eight. Let's look at the first one. Let's look at this rival conspiracy against God's servant. Now the Masoretic text ends chapter five with verse thirty. Starts chapter 6 with verse 31, which seems to fit well. So let's look at verse 31 of chapter 5. It says, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. So, So the first thing that we find is that there's a new sheriff in town. And his name is Darius the Mede. Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians in 539 B.C. And we, we witnessed all of that. We witnessed how it came down in one night in chapter 5. And, and it says Darius the Mede was named king over the region. Uh, just like Belshazzar, though, there's no historical reference outside of the Bible for, for, for a king named Darius the, the, the Mede. But, But before you doubt scripture, you you better remember what happened with Belshazzar. Somebody's going to come along and dig something out of the dirt and prove any scoffers wrong. There are two um, very good suggestions for who he is. He's not Darius I because he lived later. The first is Darius is is a title as well as a name, just just like Caesar or Pharaoh. Darius was, was like that. And so this could simply be saying king of the Medes. That would fit well for Cyrus, Cyrus the ruler of Persia. There's a, actually a reference to him later in the chapter. He was half Persian and half Median, so this could be Cyrus's Median name. He's the king or Darius of, of the Medes. but It could also be a Persian general named Gubaru, who Cyrus made king over this region after Babylon fell. The Nabonidus Chronicles mention him. And he was appointed as governor. Whoever he is, Daniel nine chapter one says this king was made king over the over the Chaldeans, so suggesting that he was appointed to this position. He didn't rise from conquering. So, so that makes Gubaru probably a, a, a better option between those two. But regardless, he launches a build back better program for Babylon. Look look at verse one. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the, over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them that the king might not suffer loss. And Now you'll recall, recall, uh, recall from last time, historians uh, tell us that there was not some massive battle that took Babylon down. I mean, the, the Persians snuck in and they killed Belshazzar and... And uh, the people didn't even fight back, which tells you a lot about Belshazzar's rule. So, so the Medes and the Persians are now in charge, and they make a very common decision. They, they don't destroy Babylon. Why would you do that? I mean, this is, this is beautiful Babylon. Now that they're in control of it, they, they convert it. They repeat what the, what the Babylonians did with the exiles of Judah. Do you remember back to Daniel chapter 1, with what they tried to do to Daniel and the three friends, they, they reorganize, they re-educate, and they, they redistribute. And to accomplish that, they keep some leaders from the old regime to help them with the transition, and that's where, that's where Daniel comes in. To help with this reorganization, Darius appointed 120 administrators, which is what that word means, satraps, to rule over the, over the kingdom. He divides up the kingdom and... And over those 120, he places three men, like governors or or presidents, and Daniel is one of those three men. But notice why these three men are are placed there. Look at the end of verse 2. It tells us why Darius does this. It says that these satraps might be accountable to them, to those three men, and that the king might not suffer loss. Now Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun and corrupt politicians clearly fall into that category. Here they are 2,500 years ago. So the purpose of these three overseers was to ensure that no thievery went on. I mean, no Persian pork projects. The term suffering loss refers to uh, taxes or, or good. And so these three presidents would would give oversight, making sure no one was, was lining their pockets. And that's where the rub with Daniel comes in. Because there's nothing a crooked politician hates more than a straight one, right? I mean, and Daniel def- is, is defined by that. It just it fits him to a T. Look, if you would, at verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So now he rises above the, the three because he has an excellent spirit. So Daniel is placed in an equal role, and immediately he begins to, to, to stand out. I mean, he was likely kept or even considered because he was part of the old regime for transition's sake. And they probably also heard about how he confronted Belshazzar at the end and the prophecy that he, that, that he gave. But it's his character that takes center stage. And it's that character that, that Daniel is hated for by, by these other men. Verse 4 says he has an extraordinary spirit. And that spirit is, is revealed to us, it's defined, through some dirt digging by, by his foes. Look at verse 4. This is how we figure out what Daniel's excellent spirit is like. It says, then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Notice the repetition. Let that sink in. I mean, in regard to how Daniel did his job... They did a background check for accusations. They, they talked to others for, for evidence of corruption. They're probably spies that, that were utilized. They did an upper and lower GI of his affairs for negligence, and they found nothing. I mean, with Daniel, there was just no negligence, referring to something that, that he did not do, or corruption, referring to something that he did do. There's there's no commission and there's no omission. He, he was not just ethically clean, he was administratively excellent. I mean, to use the, the language of 1 Timothy 3, for, for an elder, he was found blameless. It simply means an accusation won't stick. You, you throw an accusation up, up against the wall of an elder, and there's supposed to be nothing in their life that would catch it. That, that would that, As it slides down that wall, it's supposed to just slide off like a... You know, like, like a new, new skillet, Teflon. There's nothing in his life to catch it. And believe me, they tried to find something. That's what it says. I wonder, if somebody put you or, or me through those same rigors, what would they find? I mean, what if someone followed you around and watched everything you did, and, and you didn't know that they were doing that? When you returned from lunch or when, when you left for the day? What if your browsing history from last night was available to them or, or your private records were, were doxed? What, what would they find? I hope what they found with Daniel. Nothing. And when they struck out looking for skeletons in Daniel's closet and they found none, they, they then turned to the only place that, that, they, that they could, uh, the could the God that Daniel served in the open. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. They resorted to the only tactic that they knew could land a blow. They went after his convictions. Now, if you're not listening, I want you to. They looked for some place where Daniel's faithfulness to God could contradict his faithfulness to the government. They looked until they found a Romans 13 and Acts 5 conflict, some place where his religious beliefs would be in conflict with his loyalty to the king and then they made him choose. It's a maneuver of Satan as old as time. If you can't beat a saint through sin, then make it a sin to be a saint. And you've had a front row seat to that of this past year, haven't you? It's a mirror image of what's happening today where Satan couldn't get Christians to compromise in sin, and there are plenty of places that that he did, he's made being a Christian the sin. I mean, morality that was once the standard of universal right and wrong, regardless of whether you were a Christian or not, is now deemed as an evidence that you're an enemy of society. I mean, think of this. The Christian ethic that lifted the poor, that ended slavery, that founded a country that sent more missionaries around the world than any other country in all of human history is now considered evil. You promote patriarchal abuse if you believe men are elders in the church. You, you hate women if you uphold the sanctity of life. You're, you're a racist if you believe in justification by faith alone because that's connected to the Reformation which was white European movements of religious origins. I didn't make any of that up. You can Google it. They take your genuine desire to worship God and say you must want everybody to die if you come to church. (laughs) They speak evil of your good. And I could go on. They take biblical counselors trying to help people with their sin and saying you're damaging God's people or damaging people because you're you're telling them of God's judgment and this is wrong. Of course they can find counterfeit Christians that are extremes and uh, uh, unfaithful. That's part of the tactic. They take extremes and define them as the norm, but, but they force you to choose, like submit to the government or gather to worship Christ as He has commanded. And Daniel chapter 6 is an example of how doing right can bring wrong. And you have to understand that tactic if you're going to survive. I mean, if you have the perspective, if I do right, then no wrong will come to me. You're confusing where you're living. That's how things operated inside of the garden. You're living outside of of the garden now. And outside of the garden, you can do everything right and have wrong done to you. In fact... That wrong can come when you do right. I hope you understand that. If you're operating with a kingdom ethic or a Genesis 1 ethic in a, in a fallen world, you're going to be sorely disappointed and likely very confused. You may even accuse God of, of failing you. Lord, I did right, and, and why did this happen to me? And you want an example? Just look at Jesus, I mean, the sinless Son of God who came to save mankind, and he got murdered for it. But also, just like Jesus, God will take the wrong that's done and use it for his good purposes in the long run. I mean, if they can't find anything that Daniel does bad, then they will take something that Daniel does good and make it bad. That's what's happening here. The world should not be able to find something to accuse you of that's dodgy or sinful or corrupt. Christians, where that's the case, are like low-hanging fruit for Satan. He just easily exposes a secret part of their life, some corruption, and uses that to besmirch the gospel. But, But for those who pursue Christ and walk close to the Lord, he must call evil good, or good evil, I should say. And that's exactly what they do. They can't find dirt, so they change the definition of dirt. (laughs) Look, if you would, at verse 6. So then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together. We took a poll and we know what everybody wants. That's a lie because... They didn't consult Daniel. He was one of the three main leaders. look at what they say. That the king should establish a statute to enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king for 30 days, should be cast into the the lion's den. And then they ask him to, to put it into practice according to the law of Medes and Persians, which can't be revoked. So the decree is that there is to be one mediator between God and man for 30 days, King Darius. Just a 30-day executive order, King, that's all we're asking for. Everybody wants it. And Daniel's, Daniel's enemies set him up by getting Darius to issue a decree that would make it illegal to worship God in a biblical way. You can still worship under this law, but just not how the Bible demands. The edict forbade anyone from praying to any god without going through through Darius. You can worship God, you just do it the way the government tells you to do it. Darius was the primary object, the primary mediator. He stood between God and his people for 30 days. And frankly, I I don't know of any more applicable passage for our day and age than this. I mean, Daniel was forbidden to pray, but he was commanded to pray, and just like we're forbidden to gather, but we're commanded to gather. Those are not optional things. I mean, the argument that Acts 5 only applies to the big things, like the, the sanctity of marriage or, or the government saying that you can't preach the gospel is, is just fallacy. I mean, here Daniel is forbidden to pray in a biblical way. You can't get any more basic than, than prayer, except maybe gathering with the saints which is also commanded as well in Hebrews 10. I mean, requiring loyalty to, to, to the state via worship, it, it was not an uncommon thing. I mean, Christians were challenged in, in Romans chapter 10 to say Caesar is Lord in, in Rome, but instead they cried Jesus is Lord. Dr. Dijkstra said they sought to institute Darius Appreciation Month in order to eliminate Daniel. They convinced the king to change the law to make something in God's law illegal. Then they charged, uh, then they changed man's law to condemn God's law. It's exactly what our rulers are, are doing today. But which one of those laws do you think is going to be the bar on the day of judgment? Which one are you going to be held accountable to? And you know the answer, don't you? And which one of them, therefore, should you follow regardless of how many man's laws there are or how they change? You know the answer to that, too. But to do that, you have to have the fortitude of Daniel that makes a conscious choice. Notice the penalty there for rebelling against this law was was death by becoming zoo food. I mean, for 30 days you'll be... This edict is in place, and if you break it, you'll be cast into the lion's den, literally a lion's pit. It's very similar to the fiery furnace, where there's a hole in top of a mound and there's a pit down in there where you can look down in the top. Sometimes there were, there were two, uh, there was a partition with like two, two compartments. The person was dropped in this side, the lions were in this side, they lifted up, the lions come and do their thing on the, on the people. The form of execution changed because there's a different ruler. The Persian Empire. Um, changed gods. We don't have the same gods of, of, of Babylon. So under Babylon, it was execution by fire, but the Medo-Persians or Zoroastrians who, who worshipped a fire god named Atar. so it would have been, been tantamount to, to sacrilege to, to burn someone in, in fire. So they had the lions do the job for them. And, and really, this, this is not an executive order. This is more like a constitutional amendment. It, it, it's the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed. They, they say. John Whitcomb, in his commentary, said there, there's an echo of Nebuchadnezzar's statue here. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the king's law was was gospel, could could not be changed. Now the median law, not even the king, could change a royal decree. And so the golden head has thus given way to the arms of silver, the Lucian. I mean, the book of Esther talks about the, this kind of permanence. Esther 8, you remember when Mordecai wrote an irrevocable law protecting Israel in the king's name? And yet Daniel knows that there's a law that supersedes even the most powerful human king's. And it's the law that every one of us and every one of them will be judged by one day. Which brings us to Daniel's faithful consistency toward his God. If you go to verse 10, what Daniel does. It says, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees, three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. I want you to notice how Daniel responds whenever he finds out this this order has been signed. It says he knew, then he entered his house and he took a prayerful posture and he continued kneeling and praying, giving thanks just as he had previously done. That's the emphasis. He knew. And he continued just as he had previously done. I mean, the emphasis is on his conscious choice to continue to do what he'd always done. Daniel doesn't make a big show. He doesn't call a press conference and proclaim how he's going to defy this unjust order. He just resolutely continues what he was doing before the order was signed. He met with God three times a day before because that's what he does. And he continues to meet with God three times a day after it was signed because that's, that's what he does. We met for worship before the executive order was signed, and we wisely and unashamedly meet for worship now. And the significance here, I think, is so helpful because God's law doesn't change. And and so your worship of Him doesn't change either regardless of of who's in charge or or what law is passed. I mean, those things are irrelevant. There's no one that stands between God and His people, His church. And any time the state tries to insert themselves between the head and the body, that person is irrelevant. You pay no attention to them. You listen to the head, Jesus Christ. Just do what God commanded you to do, regardless of what man says. It's that simple of a task. But that requires two things when that happens, because it can be confusing. It requires a conscious choice and something already in your life to continue. I mean, if Daniel didn't pray three times a day before the edict, he's not going to do it after. And if you didn't go to church before the restrictions, you're not likely to go during them or or, or after them, unless the Lord woke you up in that that process. The opening of the window here toward Jerusalem is not showmanship or being rebellious. It's it's what Jews were commanded to do whenever they were were out of the land. I mean, he's doing what 1 Kings commanded him to do. Daniel is looking toward Jerusalem, pleading in intercession for God to restore Israel. And you remember, they're here because of their sin. And this is beautiful, really. The temple has been destroyed by this time. Remember, this is way after Nebuchadnezzar. No sacrifices were happening. But in Daniel's prayer times, when when the temple sacrifices would have taken place, he he remembers and prays for restoration. He's offering up not a blood sacrifice because that's not possible, and he, and he can't literally go to the temple in Jerusalem, so he looks toward the temple and offers up a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord. Daniel was following David's model of praying morning, noon, and, and evening. I mean, he has no concern for the conspirators, uh, conspirators or, or what they've done. He only, only has confidence in God. Look at verse 11. They're busy while Daniel's praying. It says, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Knowing where and when Daniel prayed, his enemies scurried to his room and anticipated what they would find, and that's exactly what they found. They found him praying. They cooperate, coordinate, and they connive. It says they came by agreement. They literally rushed in as a as a group. And you should not be surprised when the enemies of God cooperate. When the church is maligned and the media assists to perpetuate the slander, don't give them a sinful reason to report. But don't be shocked whenever they when they cooperate together. And don't be shocked when the enemies of God coordinate and they, they rush upon a church or a Christian school when they find something or someone to use as a tool of derision. And don't be shaken whenever they lie. I mean, being maligned for Christ is exactly where Jesus said he would be the nearest. Sidney Grudanus said the irony here, in fact, that this, the conspirators think that they found Daniel's weakness... When they found him praying, when prayer is his greatest strength, it is his devotion to God that delivers him from the, from the lions. And it's your devotion to God that will deliver you. The world has no power the Lord cannot overcome. None. Now think of the irony of the king's decree. I mean... He alone is to be worshipped. He alone is to be the mediator for 30 days, but it comes from a king who can't even change his own law. And it's like the Hindu who has to ring the bell to wake his God up to make sure the God knows that he's, that he's leaving a sacrifice there. I mean, think about that. And the trap that they set is, will Daniel obey the law of the Medes and Persians or the law of his God? And the answer to that, We'll, we'll determine, we'll say, which law is supreme to you. And Daniel is clarion in his actions. He's clear. So which law will you obey? God's or man's? If you say God's, I hope you do. It'll cost you. The enemy's deceitful charge here. Setting of the trap in verse 12. They approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction, injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, old king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? And the king replied, The statement is true. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, my authority, which cannot be revoked. And with the snare set, The trap is sprung. Look at verse 13. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles of Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petitions three times a day. Not just once, but three times every day. These guys are smart. Don't underestimate the enemy. Instead of rushing in and accusing Daniel, they asked the king whether he had signed a new law. They they appealed to his his pride and then they get him to to make that statement. Remember, he liked Daniel and they know that. They anticipate Daniel to be exalted in the land, but they also know that personal preference can't trump the law. Even the king is limited. And they came, they belittled Daniel. When they did bring the accusation, he was one of the exiles, one of these exiles of, of Judah, exactly like Belshazzar. If you remember, that's what he says about him because Belshazzar and these men are of the same caliber. But notice what they accuse him of. Pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction, or to the law that you signed. They accuse him of being a traitor and not caring about the Constitution. I mean they say, oh king, he pays no attention to you or the injunction which you sign. I mean while Daniel is a threat to democracy itself, does that sound familiar? But the king doesn't buy it and neither should you. If you go to verse 14. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and he sets his mind to set his mind on delivering Daniel and the evening until sunset, he kept uh, exerting himself to rescue him. So the king realizes he's been duped, but it's too late. The law has been signed, and so he immediately begins to look for a way to deliver Daniel. Now now think of this. The testimony and the favor of one of God's servants has a pagan king who made a contrary law, now looking for a way to rescue Daniel from that law. That's amazing. It's an evidence of the power of a testimony. And it also says uh, something to you and me that you shouldn't fear the mob. They're fierce, but the Lord has his people everywhere, just like Paul told, or God told the Apostle Paul. The Lord said to Paul in a mighty vision, Do not be afraid any longer, and go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. God will always have his people, like, like Luther had Frederick the Wise. And God's people are everywhere. They're in the current administration. They're in the Kremlin. They're, they're where, you, where you would least expect them, like, like the king of Babylon. But don't trust in them because they can't save you. Only God can do that. You go to verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, recognize that the law of the Medes and Persians, the Supreme Court has already ruled, no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. You don't have the power to do this as the executive branch. And knowing he'd been trapped, Darius looks for a way out and they remind him it's checkmate. And now he knows he is the one who has been the the victim. One commentator said, The mighty Darius the the Mede was trapped in the snare of his own pride and folly, and he knew it. And so he relents and looks the only place left for for hope. the, The king's reluctant condemnation begins with a confident assertion. Look at where he looks. He can't find an answer. So he looks where he hopes to find one. Then the king gave orders, verse 16, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. I can't, but God can, Daniel. The word save and deliver is used four times in this chapter the the two key times are, are here in verse 16 when, when the king says, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you or save you. And the next is in the morning, whenever he goes to the lion's den when he's anxious. He, says, oh, he asks the question, Old oh, Daniel, has your God, whom you faithfully serve, been able to deliver you or save you? That's where the king looks. He had no place else to look. So he looks toward, toward Daniel's God. And that's where you have to look as well. You know Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the the Lord our God. Daniel, Darius was favorable toward Daniel, but even he couldn't rescue him. Don't pin your hopes on men or elected or otherwise. Trust God to save you. And if God's your enemy, don't put hope in stones either. Look at verse 17. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den... And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. I mean, here is the second most ineffective seal ever applied. The first one was over a tomb in Jerusalem, right? I mean, a stone was placed over the mouth of the den, so someone couldn't come and try to try to get the, the condemned out like Daniel in, in the middle of the night and... The king's royal seal was placed on it, daring anyone to move it. And there were also the signet rings of the nobles because they they know that Darius is favorable to Daniel. So there's a group here sealing this. Now, stones may keep lions in, but they don't keep God out, do they? And you should hear the the echo of another stone that will be rolled in front of a tomb one day after Daniel's dead and gone. And that one was sealed, and it didn't work either. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before him and his his sleep fled from him. A troubled man. But did you notice something strange here? I mean, the writer focuses all of our attention on the king. I mean, the whole focus in verses 16 through 20 is on the anguish of King Darius rather than on the terror and the, the plight of Daniel. I mean, think about it. Who cares if Darius has a sleepless night whenever Daniel's being offered as the main course to hungry lions? But it's purposeful. The writer keeps us in suspense along with Darius until Daniel's fate is revealed in verse 21. And almost unable to wait until daybreak, Darius eagerly runs to to find out the minute that, that he can. Here's the glorious confirmation. He asked an urgent question. I'll leave you verse 19. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and he went in haste to, to the lion's den. He doesn't sleep all night, but but he, he comes out of his quarters at the minute that he can. I mean, have you ever seen those old cartoons where the 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 mother is back in the delivery ward and the the father is is out there pacing back and forth, waiting for waiting for word. That was Darius. King's been up all night and distraught. And it says he arose at dawn, literally at first light, as soon as sun was visible, and he goes there in in haste. He breaks the seal, he rips open the pit. Verse twenty. And when he came near to the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The the king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And you could cut the tension with a knife as he waits for an answer. Notice what he asks, It's it's our theme verse. Was God able? And notice, he knows who God is, but he wants to know, did he deliver? Like in verse 16, he hopes he will. It's the only place he has else to look is to, to Daniel's God. Daniel looked there and he says, Daniel, your God will deliver you. And now he's breathless. He, he comes to see if he did. And out of the dark pit comes a voice in verse 21 saying, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels to shut the mouth of the the lions, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you. O king, I have committed no crime. Daniel says, King, you're not the only one fasting last night. Do you realize these are the only words that Daniel speaks in the entire chapter? I mean this is the chapter about Daniel and the lions den and that's all we get from Daniel. But what he says is enough. He says God's angel shut all the the lions mouths. Is this the same angel from chapter 3? Was it the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean possibly we're not told for sure. But what we are told is there was a display of God's deliverance, of God's power over the natural world that that, that took place. And the, the Persians starved lions so that they would be useful in this moment. I mean, how pitiful would it be? You, the lion is full, and you throw the guy in there, and he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And they're starved, but they didn't har- harm Daniel. And he tells us why. Daniel tells us why. Because God found Daniel innocent before him and also before man, before the king. Daniel was void of offense between God and man. And so God delivered him. Don't be surprised if you suffer for Christ, if you're faithful. And if you do, you will be vindicated by God. I can't tell you when, but you will be vindicated. But don't be surprised if you suffer for your sin either. That's not God's fault, it's yours. Look at verse 23. Then the king was very pleased and he gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever, was found on him. Emphasis. Because he had trusted in his God. You hear a recurring theme here? Darius was overjoyed as Daniel was lifted out of the the pit, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There wasn't a scratch on him. But That's not the same fate for the enemies of God's people. Look at verse 24. Then the king gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them, and crushed all their bones. The king is furious for being duped, and he unleashes the merciless judgment of man. The Bible says God is merciful in judgment, but man is merciless. And they cast them, their children, and their wives in, as a pagan king does, and they hadn't reached the bottom before the lions overpowered them. There's a play on words here. Just as they had maliciously accused, literally, eaten Daniel to pieces, just as they had eaten Daniel to pieces, these men are now eaten to pieces themselves. And that leads to a royal confession about God. Look at the king's decree. Look at how king, the king responds after he punishes these. Verse 25, Then Darius the king wrote to all peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. One decree, you can't worship anyone except through me, and now the decree changes that fast. Here's the decree. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And we end chapter 6 with another declaration about God. Did you notice there's one in every chapter? They all end that way, except chapter 5. With Belshazzar, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 6 all end with a a written declaration. Chapter 5 ends with a declaration from God, but it's it's not written out. It comes with God's declaration. God's the one that makes the declaration in chapter 5. That very night, Belshazzar's soul was required as an illustration But all the other chapters, all the other declarations in the other chapters were true. What does this declaration say? It's the repeated hallmark theme, like all the others, that God is sovereign, he's the the living one who has dominion, that he rescues his faithful ones, he he delivers and rescues, and his kingdom has no end, His, his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed, the three themes of Daniel, repeated for us again at the end. And not only does God get vindicated, but Daniel prospers. Verse 28. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of, or even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The lesson that you should take away from chapter 6 is be faithful. Continue keeping God's law regardless of how the rest of them change. Be faithful. The second thing I would say is finish well. Play until the whistle blows, my senior saints' friends. Don't stumble before the finish line. Don't get too reminiscent about the good old days whenever you used to labor and you're now no longer laboring. You have two knees like Daniel did and cry out for the word of God to go forward. And if you will do both of these, you must remember, if you're going to be faithful and finish well, you must remember to trust in God's ability to rescue as you live contrary to the world and get crossed to it. Because God can do that no matter the king that that rules. And if you don't know God, It's His law that will judge you one day, not man's. And whenever you come up short on that day and the guilty verdict is read, you're going to be cast into a pit way worse than ones with a bunch of lions. It'll be eternal damnation. And why would you go there when you have the unsearchable riches of Christ and the good news of the gospel freely offered to anyone who will repent and believe, He will wash away all of your sins and give you a new heart. And He'll put a spine in you too if you trust in His Word. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word in some ways daniel has been so helpful in other ways i'm sure your people like me have felt what's the answer when when are we going to hear from god's word about what we do when when good is called evil and And yet here we are in Daniel 6, just in faithful exposition. Not in the excitement of men, but just as your word unfolds, you have the answer. And um, next week, Lord, we'll see about the kingdoms. Here we're challenged to be faithful and finish well. And trust in you. I pray we'll do that. In Jesus' name, amen.